what we have come to do. We come just saying that we are here, that we are yours. And we gather our hearts together and our minds as we circle around your inerrant, so powerful word. And we say together that you would have your way in us. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, worship team. That was rich. Have you ever experienced a wilderness in your life? Someone once said, you're either in one, you're coming out of one, or you're about to go in one. Wilderness is an interesting thing in Scripture. There's a guy named Robbie Beryl Leal who wrote a book, Wilderness in the Bible, Toward a Theology of Wilderness. And he says this about wilderness. He says, especially in the Hebrew Bible, wilderness is the privileged site where God comforts the Hebrew people or the representatives at times of crisis in their lives. In the wilderness, God calls and leads them to decisions and witnesses their shortcomings. And God disciplines and punishes them for their sin and rebellion. Throughout the Gospels, wilderness is important for Jesus as a place of encounter with the Father. And so we have to recognize as we, we're really going to, we're going to unpack Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 and going through verse 15 today. We, we started a series last week on the book of Mark. We're walking verse by verse through it. It's important to note that there is a vast difference between a wilderness we bring on ourselves as a consequence of our disobedience and a wilderness that God brings. Now, don't ask me to split those hairs because I'm not sure if we ever can really split those hairs to something that is a, a byproduct of our disobedience like the wilderness was in the Old Testament for God's people. Uh, after the Exodus experience, it was because of the disobedience that they got to experience that 40 years of wilderness. But our passage today has Jesus in a wilderness. And so we know, looking at Scripture, that Jesus was without sin. And so for him, this wilderness experience was not a byproduct of his sin. It was just something that God led him to, into, as we will read. So whether it is something that we see as a byproduct of our sin, or something that God's just bringing into our life for his purpose, either way, the reality is wilderness is reality. Tough seasons are a reality. And so today we're going to read about that, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Would you join me in reading? This is a, there's so much. I could, we could talk uh, about a lot of stuff here, uh, but I want to focus on that wilderness. But it says in verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now I want to pause. Remember last week when I said that, that, that Mark approaches the story in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus much differently than the book of Matthew uh, in the book of, of Luke specifically, and, and, and also the Gospel of John. He's just this fast-moving, powerful chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus. So you're going to start seeing that today. I mean, he just, he hits it, and then he goes on. So at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John, John the Baptist, in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Can you imagine what that was like? Golly, how incredible that, that day would have been to be there. Like this really happened. Just imagine what it would look like for the heavens to be torn. I, I don't really know. I mean, if you were to paint a painting, how would you paint that? 
what that was like. But that, that's what happened. The heaven was torn open and the Spirit descending on him, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, like a dove. And there a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So imagine, not only the, the heavens are torn, the Spirit coming down like a dove. I don't really know what that would have looked like. I mean, if you were to draw that and paint it in a picture, how would you paint that? <laughs> Pretty incredible stuff. Not only that, you got this voice. So you got these things you're seeing that you've never seen the likes of before. And then you have this voice. What do you think that voice sounded like? I don't know. But if you were to play a recording of the voice of God saying, This is my son. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What would that have sounded like? Can you imagine? Like that really happened to be those people who were following John the Baptist, which was a multitude. We learned last week that it was all of Jerusalem was following him, and all the surrounding areas were following him. They got to, with their own eyes, experience this, the heavens being torn, the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus, and the voice of God Almighty, the Father, you are my son. Maybe Charlton Heston, I don't know. Did, I don't know, I don't know. And at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and Believe. You see, that's the addition that Jesus offered there. Remember John the Baptist, his message was one of repentance. And then Jesus says, repent, turn from your ways to God, but believe. And I love that verse 15, the beginning of that. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. So I'd ask the question for myself and for you. How would you define the kingdom of God? Jesus said it has come near. Well, here's a simple way that I would define it's anywhere that God is. It's anywhere that God dwells. It's anywhere that God reigns. And that literally when Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near, it was a very literal statement. Like the kingdom of God, the king is here. And I am he. You see that? Oh, man. There's so much good stuff here that, that, that we could talk about. And, and Mark has a, he just has a way. He, it's very fast moving. I mean, we could spend a lot of time in, 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 in these chapters that we've already covered. We could, we could spend several weeks talking about the Trinity because that's what we have here. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Man, we could unpack that. It would take a while. It would take a while. In, in these verses, we have to talk about baptism. In these verses, we, we have to talk about the temptation of Jesus, and he doesn't really unpack it. Like, you know, Matthew and, and Luke treat it much differently. They, they go into the actual temptations, but Mark has his way. He just states it, and he moves on. If I was to talk about baptism, just if I was talking about baptism, because I said I would last week. Remember, if you were here last week, I told you uh, that verse 8 when it talks about I baptize, Jesus says, or John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I said that I would come back to this. So if I were to give a sermon on, on baptism, here is what it, it might look like. Jesus' baptism couldn't be one that John the Baptist was inviting people into. What was John the Baptist's baptism? It was one of repentance. Jesus couldn't 
have a baptism of repentance because he had nothing to repent from, right? So inherently, it's not the same baptism. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. Like, this guy has something, something different. It was a baptism of two things. Identification, when Jesus was baptized. It was a baptism of identification and one of modeling. So that answers the question, if I were to give a sermon on it, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? One was to identify him as Messiah. It was to identify him as Messiah. I think it's very interesting and powerful, uh, as I read and studied, and to think about who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was in the lineage, the Levitic lineage, Levi and Aaron. He was of the heir, both of his parents, as a matter of fact. His mom and his dad both came from the descendants of Aaron and, and Levi. And who were they? What did they do? They were the priests. Now, what did the priests do? They prepared and made sacrifices on behalf of the people, right? So John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus, because of that, could be seen as a priestly presentation of the ultimate sacrifice. Mm, you see identification. that This is the guy. And that's what John the Baptist was saying. I mean, he was saying it in word. Like, this guy is coming. And my role, John the Baptist, my role is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so when he baptized, what he was saying very literally, that in, as, as a, a line of, in a line of priests, I am baptizing the one you have been waiting for. And he is the ultimate sacrifice. That's why John uh, said in John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist declaring a very priestly statement, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Identification as the Messiah, but also isn't identification with sinners. If I were to give you a sermon on baptism, I would talk about that. That, that Jesus, when he was baptized, he was he was giving a picture of what he was going to do some few years after this. That he was going to take on our sin. He was going to walk in our shoes and experience our sin and pull it on himself. You see, it was an identification with sinners and betrayal of, of the righteousness that was to come. But also, he was modeling for us what we are to do as disciples. We talked about this we spent quite a long time in the fall talking about this idea that Jesus is our rabbi. And, and what do disciples do for their rabbi? They not only know what that rabbi knows, they live like that rabbi lived. So Jesus knew this. That was the context he was living in. He knew that he would have this following as a rabbi. So he did the things that we we're supposed to do. And so Jesus said, this is what you were to do. So he's modeling that which we were to do. But three specific baptisms that I have to point out. The first is the baptism of John. We talked about it. What kind of baptism was that? That was the baptism of repentance. And that says what we are going to do. That's what repentance, a commitment to repentance says, I've been going that way. When I repent, that means from this moment, I was going this way, but in the future, it talks about the future, right? I am going to go this way. So are you with me? So John the Baptist's baptism was one of something, a commitment toward the future. And then verse 8, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's the second. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
We don't talk about that. We talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me talk about that. What is that? Well, that is the moment. It's not the future things that we're going to do. That is the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, why is that the baptism of the Spirit? Because Jesus came to take away the stuff that God can't be a part of. We call that sin. And so in that moment that, that you put your faith in Jesus, walk with me. When you put your faith in Jesus, the old is taken out. The sin, the sin is taken out. Why is that so important? Well, God can't have anything to do with that. So when we put our faith in Jesus, that is taken out. And what goes in? Immediately, the Holy Spirit fills, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so, so these days, many people are pursuing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you already have it if you are in Christ. You have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, there is an ongoing filling and emptying and filling that we have to pursue as, as the people of God, right? But, but what, what John the Baptist is talking about is, is there, there will be a time when Jesus comes and he makes room to take away the sin. He makes the room for the Holy Spirit to fill and to baptize. And so that's the baptism of the Spirit. That's the actual moment of salvation. That's the actual, that's the actual moment of recreation. That's the actual moment of justification. And then there's the baptism for the New Testament church. And it talks about, it's a picture of what has already been done. So are you with me? Repentance, baptism of repentance, something that is going to happen. Baptism of the Spirit that, that, that moment that it happens when Jesus does his work and the Holy Spirit comes. And the baptism, New Testament baptism, as we look in the, after the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and the church is born, when it talks about biblical baptism, New Testament baptism, it's a picture of what has already been done. That picture of baptism in the Spirit. Does that make sense? It's a symbol. And so when we baptize... We baptize as a picture of what Jesus does when we put our faith in him. So it's after the fact. Are you with me? If I were to give a sermon, I would preach that sermon. Okay? That's what I would do. But as we look at the wilderness, I love that part. It's just a few verses here. Verse 12 and verse 13. At once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. What were those? In Mark, he just has his way. He doesn't even talk about what they were. Remember, the first one was a temptation of physical things. Like, hey, turn that rock into, into bread, right? The enemy comes, and Satan comes. That was the first one. It's the physical needs, physical desires. The second one was one of power. And the third one was one of, of materialism. So if I were to give a sermon for you today, those would be my three points, if I were. But I'm not, because Mark doesn't. He just moves so quickly here. And I love verse, verse, thir verse, uh, verse 13. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted, and he was with the wild animals. I'm a picture guy. So, so I was like, what did that mean when Jesus was in the wilderness? I mean, we know he was with the, the enemy was there, so that's scary enough. But what about, what about the wild animals? I thought about that. And as I thought about and studied that, like, what did that mean? I mean, we're talking like, like wild pigs. Are we talking about, like, deer? You know, because those are very, very, you know, the fearful deer, right? Like, they're scary. Like, what, what was that? And, and as I thought about that and as I studied, I came up with this truth that, that Jesus was a, a real man. Is it okay to say that? Like, God created manhood. Jesus was one. 
and he was, he was a strong man. So those, so those animals, what were they? If I were to talk about this, give a sermon on this, I would talk about these animals. And so nowadays, if you went to Israel, you wouldn't see those, those but as we look at the Old Testament, we know that there were lions. There were lions. Um, Samson had them, right? He, he killed a lion. There were lions in those days, not anymore because of poaching, but there were lions. Can you imagine being somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and, and approaching a lion? That's just crazy. There were tigers and bears. No, there weren't any tigers, but there were bears. How do I know that? Well, you look at the Old Testament, and you look at the life of Elisha. There were uh, some younger people who began mocking him for being bald. They called him baldy. Like, this is a true story. And what happens? There were bears that came out of the mountains and killed 42 of them for mocking him for being bald. Now, if I were to preach a sermon on that, never make fun of a bald preacher. That's getting very personal to me. But as I think about that, like, if you were in the wilderness and, and, and you, in the, I mean, in the middle of nowhere by yourself, and you ran into a bear, like, that would be scary. Like, this is not, this is not some small, like, you know, bobcat or something, which itself is kind of scary enough. But if you run into a lion... Or a bear, there was also antelope, and they're, they're kind of, I, don't, I wouldn't be scared of an antelope, I don't think. Uh, there were um, wild oxen, I wouldn't be, I don't know if I'd be scared, maybe they would be bad. I mean, they're big, you know, certainly don't want them running after you, right? Uh, th- there at that time were ostriches. I, I don't know if they're scary, I don't guess they would. They're really fast, and they're big birds, they lay big eggs, <laughs> I don't know. There's crocodiles and hippopotamuses, but, but when it says that Jesus was there, in the wilderness, and he was with the wild animals. Like, that was a real deal. I mean, back in those days, it was dangerous to be in the wilderness alone. And there Jesus was, strong. But also, the next verse talks about that Jesus was protected. And so Mark chooses to move quickly through the baptism and temptation of Jesus, focusing on the sequence more than going into the actual details of of what happens in the experience. And so for us... I think Mark wants us to understand, God through Mark wants us to understand that a call to God through Jesus is a call to be sent out into the wilderness. That's what happens to Jesus. Identification that this is the Son of God, immediately he was taken out to, into the wilderness. Even deeper than that, he wants us to see God's relationship with us as we walk through the wilderness. And so that's what I, I want to uh, I want to focus on a day in the wilderness. What are, what are we supposed to experience as followers of Jesus, the Son of God, in the wilderness? Like, what are we uh, to experience? So Jesus has modeled that. He has already experienced that. And as we try to wrap our mind around that, there was a, name, a lady named Marlena Graves, and she wrote a book called A Beautiful Disaster, and she talked about some things that we should get out and we should we should. Uh, we should, we should uh, attain in and grasp in the wilderness experience. He, she says this, God uses the wilderness experiences in our lives to teach us his name. If we, like Moses, wish to see God's glory, it will often be in the wilderness that we see it. The beauty of the desert experience is in the beholding God. It's as if he woos us out into the wilderness so we can behold him. In the desert, he seeks to know us and to be known by us. And we behold him and we come to know him. We learn his name and his ways and become increasingly whole. To, become, to borrow a phrase from Father Greg Boyle, we marinate in the intimacy of God. I love that word, that marinate. I like steak, so like you say marinate, like I'll lean in. We marinate in the intimacy of God. She goes on to say, throughout our wilderness experiences, we will become familiar with different facets of God's character and thus different aspects of his name. 
There are a variety of circumstances in which we will come to know God intimately as Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. Not just a financial provider, but the provider of our wholeness and the wholeness of others. And in our injury and in our sicknesses, we will come to know him, needing him to be God who heals us, Jehovah Rapha. He is Jehovah Rapha for us and for the world. And God will nurture deep trust in us as we begin to discover who he is as revealed in his names throughout Scripture. And in our desert experiences, she wraps up, in our desert experiences, probably more so than any other time, we learn just who God is and and consequently who we are. And so as we look specifically in verses 12 and 13, three things. In the wilderness experiences, we are proved. We are proved. And what does that mean? Well, look up the word prove in the dictionary, and it says this, to demonstrate the truth or existence of something by evidence or argument, or to demonstrate to, be speci- to, to the specified thing by evidence or argument. The, the third is, according to Briz, become aerated by the action of yeast or to rise... The fourth is subject to a testing process, and in homeopathy, is that right? To demonstrate the action of a remedy by seeing what effect it produces in the healthy individual. And so here's the truth of the wilderness, that when we are in Christ, we express that in Christness. I like to make up words, you with me? We express that in in Christness in the trials. In the wilderness. And for Jesus, it happens immediately. Like, identification as a son of God. Immediately, he was taken by the Spirit. He was taken by God. You see, God is sovereign in the taking. Are you with me? God is in control when, when, he, when he leads us, when he guides us, when he draws us. And here, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, literally takes him. I don't know what that was like, really. But, but Jesus was here, and the Holy Spirit took him out into the wilderness. I don't know what that means. Don't ask me to explain that. All I know is that God authored this. You see, God is, is in control. He is sovereign in the taking, and he has purpose in the pain. And I don't like that. Let's be honest. I don't like that. I just know it to be true. I just know it to be true. So in the wilderness experience, there is an opportunity for us to prove that we are legitimately and authentically in Christ. That's why it says in James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, there's purpose in the pain. The trials have, have a purpose. 1 Peter 1, 7, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. And so you have this baptism of water that John the Baptist is talking about. He talks about the baptism of the Spirit that comes through Christ. When you're in Christ, you're baptized with the Spirit. There is a a filling, and, and then there is, after the filling, there is a sealing. There is a seal of salvation that protects our salvation until Jesus comes and, and, and gets us. And I love that. And so there's this baptism of the water and then the baptism of the Spirit when we are in Christ. And then there is a baptiz- baptism of fire. Like that's the real world stuff. Is that God allows this wilderness experience in our life to prove. To build us up and prove that we are his. You see, faith and works go hand in hand. You see, faith is the way we access salvation, but works in the way we live is the way we prove 
the salvation. Are you with me? Does that make sense? For by grace are we saved through faith. This not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works so that, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ to do good works. So built into that Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 passage is that faith is our access point to salvation, but it leads to, and we are created for works. And so it's a both and that, that we experience faith and works go hand in hand. So the wilderness reveals fruit of genuine faith for those who are buried and raised in Christ. Think about a desert. What grows in the desert? Desert plants. I mean, don't ask me to name them all. All those cacti and all those things. How do they live? How do those cactus live? They dig deep through the dirt into springs underneath. That's the only way they can live. They can go a long time without water, but they have the ability to dig deep in life-giving water, and we also are the same. In the desert seasons of life, it, it drives us to root ourselves in our identity in Christ. It drives us to do that, to root ourselves in the goodness of God, into being known by Him, and to know Him and loved by Him. And we need to be rooted in that identity of being a new creation that we talked about last month, a, a new creation in the merciful and divine Creator. You see, we store, just like those plants do, we store these things up these truths, we allow them to spur growth in us, to, to spur perseverance, to spur a, a healthy, righteous, good response to the tough times in life, to deepen our roots, to bring us to bloom, even in the most trying to reign. You see, in the wilderness, we must root ourselves in who God is to us. So we are proved in the wilderness, but here's the second and the third thing. I'll give them to you right at the same time. In the wilderness experience, we are protected. And in the wilderness experience, we are provisioned. That's what happens to Jesus. Jesus is the very son of God. And yes, he was the man of all men. I mean, don't look at the Super Bowl as today as what you think a man is. Look at, look at who Jesus is and the way he lived his life. He was a real man. He is also 100% God. Give him that. But he modeled for us what it means to be a man. But in the wilderness, we, we still... We all, no matter how strong we think we are, man, we are defenseless without the Almighty God. We are so defenseless without the Almighty God. But God, the Father, was with him. Do you see that? He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. He was, he was protected, not protection from the hard stuff, protection in the hard stuff. I don't like that either. But that is very true. God doesn't shelter us from the hard stuff. He walks with us through the hard stuff. That's why we hear stories of these missionaries all around the world. And you can go read books, Voice of the Martyrs, and so many others where missionaries are on the front lines of gospel work. And it is hard. It's so tough. It's not easy stuff. I read a story of about Lori Anderson, who was missionary to the head-shrinking Kandoshi Chopra Indians of Peru. This was in Daily Bread on August 13, 1990. It says this, that, that Lori was looking for a quiet place for her daily time of Bible reading and prayer. So she went down by the edge of the river. Can you see it? After reading the Bible, she took up her prayer list, eyes closed. She did not see the deadly anaconda. 
weaving through the water until it struck, bearing its fangs into her flesh. It withdrew, it withdrew to strike, hitting her arm again and again as it held her, screaming in its coils. It reared up for the death blow. Then suddenly the giant snake, never known to release its prey, relaxed its grip and slithered off through the water. While Lori was being treated, a witch doctor from a nearby village burst into a hut and stared at her. She couldn't believe Lori had survived. She said her son-in-law, also a witch doctor, had chanted to the spirit of the anaconda that morning and sent it to kill the young missionary. I'm certain, Lori said, that except for the protection of God, it would have worked. That's what God does. It's who he is. He protects his children. By the way, you've got to come back the next few weeks. We're going to talk about demons. And all, I mean, all this dark side of things that we, we just have to. I mean, you don't have a choice when you're teaching verse by verse. You're going to have to talk through some tough stuff. We're, we're jumping in. So you've got to come back. We're going to talk through some stuff because it's real. Like this stuff really, this is a real story. It really happens even today. This kind of stuff happens. And so we experience in the wilderness the, the proving that we are authentically following Jesus, but we experience miraculous protection of God here in Jesus Think about Daniel in the lion's den. Den. Think about Joseph when he was sold off into slavery. Uh, Think Paul. Golly, so many times over and over, Paul experienced the the powerful hand of protection. Think Israel. This disobedient people over and over again, they were so crazily, crazy disobedient. And God protected them over and over again and over again. And we can talk about the victory after the protection, but today I want to talk about like during the midst of the wilderness, what happened? God protected. And there's a picture of God's protection, and it is that of a chicken. Y'all, y'all know my chicken stories. I've got chickens. I got, this is not a joke, y'all. Do you know that God is described as, as, a, as a mother hen that protects his chicks? Like under her wings? Psalm 91.4, he will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Psalm 61.2-4, from the ends of the earth, I cry to you for help when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the towering rock of safety, for you are my safe refuge. A fortress where my enemies cannot reach me. Let me live forever in your sanctuary, safe beneath the shelter of your wings. You see, in the wilderness, and that's the time to acknowledge the sovereign and never-ending faithful protection of God the Father over us. He doesn't protect us from the hard stuff, but in the hard stuff, man, He is with us. He is with us. And we also find in verse 13b that God provides he is the provisioner. He sends his angels to take care. I don't really know what that meant. But there Jesus was a son of God. He's hurting and he's in need. And God provides these angels to help take care of Jesus. God is the great provider. He loves to provide for his children. He really does. He loves it. When we moved in 2000, early 2009, we moved to Rapid City, South Dakota, and we just knew that God had led us to plant a church there in that beautiful place. We spent six years of our life there, and I was 27 years old when we moved there. Josiah was one, and the other two weren't born yet. They were both born, and, and I was so naive. I thought I knew how to plant a church, but let me be honest, I had absolutely no idea 
I mean, I thought with a little bit of money, we'd be just fine. I didn't know I was supposed to raise money before I went. Like, I just didn't know. It was, call it ignorance. That was me at 27 years old. We learned so much, and God did so much. And it was a struggle. I looked for a job because I, I really, when we, when we moved there, we had $900 a month to plant a church and live off of. You can't do that. You can't do that. So I began to get busy raising some resources, getting partners, but, but I started applying for jobs, and it was a hard, uh, hard time to find a job, so I ended up driving a school bus. And that was a great job. I mean, it paid decent per hour. I worked 20 hours a week and got full benefits, which was awesome. That was just a gift for me. But at $900 a month to plant a church and a, and a bus driver's income, guess what? It wasn't much. But every time we were in need, there would be something. There would be something. There would be a check in the mail. Boom, exactly what we needed. There would be people that would come. Man, I just didn't have any more time. God would provide the, the, the resources needed for needed for the mission. Man, I, it was, we're pregnant. We're going to have a kid. That's expensive. Like, how are we going to pay for this? Man, just so happens that our income is just low enough to, for the government to be able to come in and help. And, man, I was so thankful for that in that season. So many ways that God came in and he provided. And he worked miracles. He worked miracles over and over again. God was lifted up there, continued to be lifted up in a little church that growing that called Hills of Grace Fellowship in Rapid City, South Dakota. Yeah, I, I, I've learned in Scripture that, that God loves to provide, but I have learned myself, and I believe you have too, as you look back. Count your blessings, name them one by one. We can sing that song. We can just go together and have a testimony time. And we could all take some time, and we should do that sometime soon, just to remember inherently, yes, we know this is true in God's Word. God did this for Jesus, but we know personally that God does this for us. He does this for me. He does this for you. That's why it says, Jesus says in Luke 12, 24, Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the birds. See, we have to make that transition from, from God providing for Jesus, his son, to, to make that jump in Scripture to realize that through Jesus, we are in, adopted into his very family. And so as much as God provided for Jesus, he as much does so for us and offers that to us. He protects us and he provides for us. He is the lion. He is the lion. That's why we put that back there. Look at the lion of Judah. Try to wrap your mind around, what does it mean that Jesus is a lion? C.S. Lewis attempted to wrap, help wrap our minds around that. He wrote a collection of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Y'all remember that? It's an incredible story, an incredible picture of what we're trying to wrap our minds around. There are two main characters, Lucy and Susan. They're young girls who find themselves in a strange, dark world, talking to beasts and fanciful kingdoms locked under a spell of evil. They're walking in that, trying to figure it out. And there's a, there, it was a place where there's always winter but never Christmas. And they come upon a few characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And, and they began to explain and ask questions about this land, the strange land that they were in. And the beavers began to tell them about a great lion. And C.S. Lewis named, names him Aslan, who is coming soon to conquer evil and restore the land to peace and security. What's more, the children discover that they will become key players in Aslan's great plan of redemption. And so Lucy asked a question. 
is, is he a man? That's not a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quiet safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. As we wrap a mind around, and we're going to spend the whole entirety as we walk through this book of Mark trying to understand greater, what does it mean that Jesus is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world? He is both Lion and Lamb. Here's what that means. Two words to start with A. The band's going to come up and we're going to close. God is a lion. Jesus is a lion. He is able. He is able. And that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to get those kids to, through those questions, trying to get us to understand that the lion of Judah is so powerful. He is able to do anything. He can conquer. He can bring victory. And that's what happens a little later on. The lion comes and he leads to victory. He leads to redemption. So, so the lion is able. Jesus is able. But at the same time, he's trying to explain that Jesus, the lion, is approachable. He's approachable. He is good. By nature, he is good. He is gracious. He is loving. He is merciful. And so God the Father, in, in, in our text today, he reminds us that, yes, we're going we're gonna to have to be in the wilderness. And in that wilderness, we're going to be proven. The authenticity, authenticity of our faith is proven. But in the midst of it, he is with us. This one who, who is good is with us. He is ours. He is, he is walking through that journey with us protecting and providing. And so today, if you come, you're in that very wilderness. It's an invitation to us to embrace the wilderness. Embrace it. Embrace the wilderness and claim it as a fruit-bearing season. Can you imagine what that would look like? That's bold to take that tough time and to turn it for the glory of God in your good for the good around you. Embrace the wilderness and claim it as a fruit-bearing season. Embrace the embrace of the line of Judah, our King Jesus, who is good, who protects, and he provides. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do that very thing right now. All of us in some way are going through a tough, a tough time. Something in our life is a wilderness. In the wilderness today, we find a reminder that you are a protector and you want to provide. God, may you find us proving our faith and trust in you, our King, our Lion. In Jesus' name we pray.